justice and injustice are words that are thrown a lot thrown around a lot in our culture. So whether it's the news cycles or it's the social media that maybe you, you pay attention to or, or just conversations. If you're kind of awake at all, you've probably realized in the last several years the term justice, the word justice, injustice, injustices, it's, it's kind of everywhere it seems. It's filling up the air. So much so that there is a term which I'm sure most of you are, all are familiar with, with a social justice warrior, people who are so committed to justice, social justice, that they're kind of taking on this warrior mentality. Now, I realize that we're beginning a sermon talking about political things and Depending on who you're listening to today and this day and age, I realize that as a white, heterosexual, Christian male, that I'm kind of the problem for some people. By just being born, I am a, an oppressor. But we're all consumed with this idea of justice. And that's a really, really good thing to be talking about, thinking about, to be giving our time to. This is not a topic that we can just say, well, that's for them to deal with. That's not my problem. That's their problem. Let's just kind of throw it out. Justice and injustice is not something that we should ignore. Rather, it's something we should be as Christians diligent about seeking justice, that the injustices are corrected. But you can understand the frustration that comes from all this. All this conversation, all this talk about justice, injustice, right and wrong, social justice warriors, and all these things. But the reality is without God, there is no justice. This is a very simple, basic Christian truth that God is the giver of truth and of law and His will, and He has told us how He wants us to live. He's the true and right one. He is just. So without God, there is no justice. Now, there might be opinions about what is right and what's true, but without a God, those are just opinions, man's opinions, and they're broken opinions. And if you have any doubts about that, just look at the 20th century, at communism. When left, for man left to themselves to come up with their own form of justice, the millions and millions of people murdered when justice is left in the hands of men to figure out. Thankfully, that's not the case. God has revealed Himself both in general revelation and special revelation. Now, these are kind of theological terms, but general revelation is just saying God has revealed Himself in His creation. You cannot go into creation and look at the sky and the stars and the trees and children and think, yeah, there is not a God. He has revealed Himself. Now, man is great at hardening their hearts against these things. But there is, as Romans 1 says, this general revelation, God has revealed Himself. And then there is special revelation, which is God revealing Himself more fully in His Word that we have as Christians. It tells us more about, more about who God is, what He's like, what He's doing, what He's called 
us to and how we are to live. Now, I would argue that both general revelation and special revelation, and it's clear that there are things set apart that we should not do. I think these, these revelations, they, they teach us that murder is wrong. It's just wrong. It goes against the thing that God has put in us. And there's these wicked acts that people partake of. We know it's just, it's just wrong. And you don't necessarily need a chapter and verse, although it's there. <laughs> but just God and His goodness and His revelation to mankind says, these things are wrong. We're to do good to one another, not harm to one another. As mankind created in God, God's image, it should be our desire to seek to do good and not harm. But the reality is that we're sinful. We have a broken nature, a sinful nature. And because we have that nature, our desire has changed. And in Nehemiah 5, we're going to get into this, how the Jews, they're not seeking to do good to one another. They are oppressing one another. There was great injustices going on, and Nehemiah steps in to bring justice and to model generosity. Because of our fallen nature, we are sinful. We're naturally not just and not generous people. This morning, what we're going to kind of walk through and see is that injustice, it's the natural posture of the human heart. Injustice is the natural posture of the human heart. And generosity is a posture of a new heart. Generosity is a posture of a new heart. And there's, this is going to be kind of a, a long introduction this morning because we're, we're going out of Galatians. We finished that, and I am going back to a series that I began last September through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're, again, we're in Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. And this is the story of God bringing His people out of exile back to Jerusalem. And there's almost, most of the sermons through Ezra and Nehemiah, that series, are on the church website. You can listen to them there if you wish. But the theme of the series is that God is faithful to renew and restore His people. God is faithful to renew and restore His people. Now, whether you know this or not, all the Bible, all 66 books, are telling us a story. They're telling us a story about God redeeming His people. So from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, the Gospels, the Epistles, uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Minor Prophets, the Major Prophets, all these books, the book of Judges, where you read Judges and you're like, I'm not sure what's going on at all. They're all telling part of the story of God's redemption of His people. They're all connected. So the Old Testament is not just a collection of stories that we're going to read and, and hopefully glean some lessons from. These are scenes in God's story of redemption. So we need to pay attention to these things. So a little bit of background before we jump into chapter 5. The people of Israel were disobedient. So King David, if you're aware, King David was the second king for Israel, and he comes in the year 1000 B.C. This is a thousand years before Jesus is born. And, and things are going really well. 
things are going well, and then he makes mistakes, and there's a lot of chaos, and his son Solomon comes, and things go very well for the nation of Israel. But then they begin to fall again into disobedience, and they begin to follow their own fleshly desires and their own wicked, sinful hearts, and they begin to rebel against God and not be faithful and obedient to what He's called them to. And this goes on for, for generations. And God's always seeking to call His people back. Return to me. Come back. I will love you. I'm gonna, I have a covenant love for you. Return. I'll restore. I, I will fulfill the promises I have for you. Pleading. And with that, through the prophets, He also gives this warning. If you continue in your disobedience, if you continue in your hard-heartedness, in your rebellion, I'm not going to forsake you. Because I made a promise, I made a covenant with you that I will redeem you. So I'm not going to forsake you and just throw you away and start again. But I will lovingly but painfully discipline you. And that discipline was being taken out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, carried off into to Babylon. And this prophecy, this, this warning was carried on for years. And then finally, the Lord allowed it to pass. The Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, came in and destroyed the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem, and they carried off the people into captivity. This is a, a heartbreaking time in the story of God's people. Their rebellion, their hard-heartedness. God was gracious. He was patient. But He still did not cast them off. He lovingly disciplined them. And then after that time, and as Jeremiah writes, he says, listen, I have a plan for you. You know that, that really popular Bible verse, which is true. God says, I, I have a plan for you. I'm going to prosper you and these things. And we like to kind of make that our own. Well, there's a promise to the nation of Israel. It was their promise. And, and there is an extension that it is a promise for us as God's people. He is going to bring us into his kingdom. But Jeremiah was speaking about the people in captivity, that God was not forsaking them. He didn't forget about them. He didn't just kind of let them linger and say, well, when you're ready, when you're repentant, when you've kind of suffered enough of wrath, then you can come back. But he said, you'll be there for 70 years, and then you'll return. Seventy years came and went, and they returned. And this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people returning back. So in the year 605 B.C., or sorry, in the year 558 B.C., they bring the people back. Led, there's three waves that come back. The first, there's 50,000 people. Keep in mind that almost everyone who had lived in Jerusalem before is dead. 50,000 people pack up their things, leave what they know to be home, and head to a destroyed land, a desolate land, a land of shame. And they get back and they start to rebuild the altar. And they rebuild the altar and they begin to sacrifice on it again to their God, the God of Israel, the one true God. And then opposition comes in and they stop the work. And there's this theme in here, and I want us just to, I'm going to highlight this briefly. But there's these themes that we see in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. One is that we see God's amazing provision. 
If you're familiar with the story, every time there's a group who's in the captive land of Babylon who gets sent over, the king, whether it's um, Cyrus or, or Artaxerxes, they, they say, or Darius, they say, listen, we're just going to give you whatever you want. These are pagan kings that don't worship the God of the Bible, who have really no care about the God of the Bible, and for some reason, they're giving these slaves all these wonderful possessions and money and resources to go back to their land, which they were taken from, to rebuild their land. This is God's provision for God's people. God's providing for His people. He provides protection for His people. He provides resources for His people. The other thing that we, the theme we see throughout this story is this strong opposition. There's always someone opposing God's people. It's always the, the people of the land, the, the, the governors of the land, the people who, are, who used to be Israelites, but they have left and they've kind of just kind of hanging out in the area, and now that the, the true Israelites come back, they're opposing them. There's always this strong opposition. And unfortunately, at times, this opposition, it stops the people from rebuilding. They stop rebuilding the temple at one point for years. And then the prophets come in and they say, why are you living in furnished houses when the temple of God has not been rebuilt? So they rebuild again. They start the work again, but there's strong opposition. And then there's a need for diligent obedience because Almost every chapter in these stories, the people begin to wander. They begin to kind of just, hey, we're back in our land. I think we're good. They get comfortable, and they stop seeking to be obedient to God. So there needs to be this diligence in obedience, this diligence in their obedience. Slowly, they rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah comes on the scene, and they begin to rebuild the wall, and they rebuild the wall in, in record time. But when he's coming, there's also a famine going on in the land. People are starving. People are mortgaging their, their land. They're selling their children themselves so that they can eat. And this is what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 5. They've just finished the wall. It's amazing feet. They finish the wall, and then Nehemiah goes on, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1, 1 through 5. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in your power to help us. But is it not in your power to help it? For other men have our fields and vineyards. So this is the, the scene that's going on. And I just want us to realize as we read through those verses that these were, these were fellow Jews, oppressing fellow Jews, Israelites oppressing, oppressing Israelites. 
And that this injustice, it just reveals man's brokenness. And we don't have to look very far in our world to see injustice. It is all around us. And it just points to the brokenness of man's heart. And here Nehemiah is hearing, finish the wall, this amazing feat. And then he just turns around and there are all these people coming to him saying, listen, is this not in your power to do something? We're starving. We're enslaved. Our, our children are enslaved. We're paying taxes. We've, we've mortgaged everything we owned. Can you not do something? The, the people of God were oppressing the people of God, and they knew they were not supposed to do this. In Deuteronomy 23, 19, it says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And then also in Deuteronomy 15, this was clear instruction about the heart that they were to have for the poor among them. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in your towns, within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. Just pause there. If you're not aware of this, in the Old Covenant, there's this thing called the, the year of Jubilee. And every seven years, everything was kind of reset. The debts, the negotiations, the land contracts, everything went kind of back to its original owner. And so this is what he's referencing. Don't take advantage of people because of the year of Jubilee. I find my, Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall, be, shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that, you're, that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land." So this is clear instruction given to God's people generations ago. And we know that one of the things that Ezra did when he came and the second wave of exiles returning is that he began to teach the law thoroughly. And so these people would have heard this instruction. They would have known this instruction, but yet they're blatantly disobeying it. They're taking advantage of the poor. And if anyone understood what it meant to be oppressed, you think it would be the Jews. They were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Then they were, then the whole time when they're in their land, they're kind of being occupied by other people. They're at war with other people. They're, they're fighting, and then they get taken into captivity for seven years, and they finally come back. If there are people that understand what it means to be oppressed, it would be these people. But yet they turn around, and they begin to oppress others. Again, injustice, it's a theme in the hearts of humans. 
It's a theme in us. We oppress because we're selfish. We want what we want. We want to feel comfortable. We want to feel superior. We want to be satisfied. We want to be pleasured. We want to be entertained. We want to rule our life. And so we oppress. And in our area where we live, there's not this kind of drastic injustices and oppression going on. But there's still in our hearts a desire to oppress others. Sometimes it's just, I want to be right, and I want them to be proven wrong. I want, to see, I want others to see that I'm right and they're wrong. They, they need to be brought down. They need to be humbled, and I'm the one to do it. It's this looking down on other people as if they are less than us. As if somehow we are better than they are. We're, we're worthy of some kind of better treatment or more respect. And this is not the reality. We are all broken and sinful, wicked people before God in our own hearts. So this is in us. We oppress. And if you don't believe me, if you, if you don't believe that oppression is just natural to mankind, I just encourage you, go watch kids play. Just go watch them for a, for a little bit of time. See how quickly kids interact and begin to kind of subvert their will on one another, right? Or maybe you've had the, this sad opportunity to see a marriage devolve, dissolve into dysfunction. You see a spouse oppressing another spouse. Or just examine your own heart as you go to a public place and you just begin to observe and watch. And you're just kind of people watching, which can be a lot of fun. I mean, but if you're not careful, you begin to, to make judgments about people. You begin to think things about people. You don't even know them. You don't know their story. You don't know what they believe. You don't know anything. And you're beginning to draw this whole assumption about where they fall in kind of your rank and your observation of their value. And I don't say that to put shame on you. I'm just saying we have to acknowledge this is a, a part of, of our heart. This injustice. We're broken. And that we're selfish. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That isn't an observation. That's not an opinion. That's a command from God to His people. It goes on, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. We're reading in Nehemiah where it says like, 
or in Deuteronomy where it says, listen, don't be oppressing people because it's God who gave these things to you. It's God who has redeemed you. If there's anything good in you, it's because God has done it. And because of these things, because of Christ redeeming you, there should be no selfishness in you. And so as believers, we're working to be more and more like Christ. And we're failing, but we are striving to be obedient to Him. So injustice reveals our brokenness, but true justice, it reveals God's goodness. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 6. We're going to 6 through 13. I was angry when I heard their outcry and their words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunt of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending to them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to me, return, return to them this very day. Their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah was very quick to respond, forceful in his response. It says that he took self counsel with himself. There's not even people around him that he's taking counsel with. He's just saying, we've got we to figure this out, me, myself, and I. And he had God's word and truth to work with. And he brings these charges against him. That you're enslaving the very people we have brought back from slavery. And then he commands the oppressors to right the wrongs as best they could. He says, you're going to make this right. You're going to make it right today. We're not waiting for another day. We're not waiting for another week. We're not letting you get your affairs in order. It's today we will reckon this. You're giving back everything that you've taken. You'll restore and what a picture, just a, just a glimpse of when Jesus Christ returns. And he says, all things right in a day, in a moment. And here we are pining away in our life, trying to be faithful to God and, and to honor Him and to be obedient, but we know that the world is broken. We know there's injustice. 
We know there's selfishness and oppression all around us, and our hearts long for this reckoning when God will set all things right. And Nehemiah, he gives them this warning. He says, if you, if you fail to do this, if you fail, and he gets the priests in to make this a covenant, but he says, if you fail, may God shake out every man from his home. The people that God has been preserving, carried off into captivity, brought back. And he's saying, if your heart is going to continue against God, may He shake you out and be emptied. You want nothing to do with God. May He have nothing to do with you. This is what we see similarly in Acts chapter 18. Paul is trying to share the gospel with the Jews, and they want nothing to do with this. It says in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your hands, on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. But this, this sharp word from Nehemiah, this didn't come about because Nehemiah just had a, a really good moral conscience. And he was like, yeah, you know, I just, I feel like intrinsically I just know what's good. And this is against that. It wasn't just this internal kind of figuring things out. He knew what God had said. He knew God's desire and His will. It was not for oppression. God hates wickedness. Oppressing others is wicked. It goes against His design. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Isaiah 1, 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. See, what Nehemiah knew is what was going on was not just against one another as, as two brothers, or two Hebrews. It was against God and God's design for His people. And this brings this, this outrage from Nehemiah, and it reveals that God is the giver of true justice and that God is just and good. Nehemiah was serious about correcting the injustices, and he was serious about generosity. This last section we're going to look at here, we see that Nehemiah begins to give out of his own wealth, not for his own credit, not for his own fame or for his own name, but for the good of those around him. Look in verse 14. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their, for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver 
Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I, was per- I, I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from other nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. In all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor." because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, O God, all that I have done for the people. Since generosity, it reveals a godly heart. And it begins, and I want to look at just kind of two verses here, the second part of verse 15 and verse 19. There's a a fear of God. Look at verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid a heavy burden on the people and took from them their daily rations. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And then verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. Even in Nehemiah, he he sees the oppression going on and and he's seeking to aid that. But even in that, he's not looking to win friends. He's not kind of making some post like, hey, look what I did. I fed all the people. Look at what all these things. He's doing it because he fears God. He loves God. He seeks to be obedient to God. This is a, a reverent fear that drives us to honor and obey and love God. He feared the Lord in a good and right way. It drives him to generosity. It pushes him to generosity because of what God had done for him. And generosity also reveals that we see and respond to the needs around us. See, he, he could read the lay of the land. People were starving. And he had a right as a governor because he was sent from the king of Babylon into the province that was technically still owned and ran by the Babylonians. He had a right as the governor of the land to make all the people serve him. They had to feed him, provide for his home, all these things. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, society might say that's my right or that's my privilege, but I'm not going to step into that because these people are suffering. He wasn't seeking to self-gain. He was obviously a very wealthy man. He could see the needs around him. So we're not supposed to, as Christians, just hoard up for ourselves, but rather to be taking what God has given us and giving it to others. This is a blessing. As as we stand here in in the world, we can look out over the last several hundred years and see just the blessing of of Christians who have been generous with what they've had, right? You look at just America, like almost most of the hospitals were started by Christians. Most of the universities in the early days of America were started by Christians, not because like, we just wanted to dominate the world, but we saw there's a need, there's a need, practical need for people who are, who are hurting or in pain. There's a need for education, for people to read and to, to flourish. And so you see people giving to these things. You look at humanitarian crises in the world. Christians give above and beyond any other group, any other society or religion. 
And we don't do this so we can kind of pat ourselves on the back and like, well, we're really good givers. Look at us give. No, we just realize that everything we have has been given to us by God. It's by Him we have it, and so we're just passing it along for the good of others. We're not hoarding it up for ourselves. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're passing it along for others. Now, hear me. I'm not saying it's wrong to have things. It's not wrong to to be rich with money, but seek to be rich in the things of God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as God, as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. We're not clinging to our things. Nehemiah's not clinging to his things. We're not trying to hoard up money. It's not wrong to have the money, but we're not looking to that for any kind of hope or for joy or for contentment, but rather that we would have good works because of what God has done for us that we may take hold of that which is truly life, Jesus Christ. Because He gave for us. God gave for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, we we worship and we bow down and we follow a giving God, a generous God. A God who, because He is just, He couldn't just pass over your sin. He couldn't just take my sin and say, well, don't don't worry about it. That's injustice. But because He is just, He sent His Son to die for you and for me, that we may be atoned for that the wages of our sin might be paid by Jesus Christ. The greatest act of generosity that you and I will ever receive is God's love for us. This is only possible because Jesus died for our sins. He died for us, paying the price. We wronged God. We rebelled against Him. We deserve hell for eternity. This is the just thing. Punishment must be brought. Jesus Christ paid that price. And for almost everyone, maybe everyone, that's not the first time you've heard that. But you'll never get past that. You'll never outgrow that truth. That you were wicked. That God was holy and just. 
in Jesus Christ dying for you, making you right with God so that you can walk with God and live and enjoy Him and praise Him forever. He loves us. He gave Himself for us. We are generous and we seek justice because God is good and just and He is generous with us. Let's pray.